Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. And um, we're going to do a verse-by-verse exposition of the, of the book of Ruth, and it is a, a tremendous book, and I trust that you will uh, enjoy it very much, that you'll learn many lessons in this book about love, loss, and redemption. And uh, the, the, the biggest, and i got to kind of give you a spoiler a little bit, at least it's a spoiler for me, it, it's... it's, it's um, it's absolutely extraordinary that God used a Moabitess woman to bring about the lineage of Jesus Christ, because she and Obed, she and Boaz gave gave birth to Obed, which gave birth to Jesse, who gave birth to David, which is the line of which Jesus Christ comes. So Ruth was not a Christian lady when they first went to Moab, but she trusted in Yahweh and uh, trusted in the God of Israel, and God just used her in a tremendous way. But this is a good book. I've read through it several times. Uh, I don't think that I've ever done, well, I don't think I know that I've never done an exposition on it here for you all. So we're going to dive into it, and we're going to see the lessons that God has to tell us through the book of Ruth. And let me start by just a few introductory comments before we actually get into the text. I'm not going to read the text because, as normal, I don't know how long far we're going to get, so we're just going to go verse by verse and see what God has to say to us. Uh, but the fact is that life, every life, is filled with defining moments, isn't it? Life is filled, your life, my life, all of our lives are filled with those key crossroads along the way you come to the point in your life you come to this crossroads where you could go left or right or keep straight and all of which would have differing results on the one hand you have people that consciously choose a particular destination they consciously make their own choices. But on the other hand, you have times when it seems like that the road that you're on was chosen for you, doesn't it? But we must always remember, because we serve a sovereign God, every road that we take has been sovereignly chosen by our Creator for us. But as far as the paths and the destinations that we take, it does seem sometimes that there are roads that we have chosen and there are roads that have been chosen for us. Because in life, let's be real, in life we all come in conflict or in contact or we come face to face with things in our life that we would have never chosen for ourselves. No one ever chooses, at least I hope this is not the case, no one ever chooses for their husband to die. And leaving them a widow and raising 
two young sons. No one ever chooses to have a crippling accident or a life-threatening disease that has permanent consequences. Nobody chooses that for themselves. Nobody gets in their quiet time in the morning and asks God to please give me some dreaded disease. We just don't do that. In fact, we pray the exact opposite, Lord, keep me healthy. We pray to that to such an extreme that Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6 that nobody can, by worrying, can add one moment to his lifespan. That's how serious we are about our life. So nobody prays and chooses those type of things. But here's the point, here's the facts, that those times in our life, they are defining moments in our life. But for all of us, no matter what choices that we make or what choices seem to have been made for us, we're all on a journey. And each one of our journeys are separate. We're heading down some road and we're heading down towards some specific destination. And the first chapter of Ruth is a book of stories of choices, choices that were made and choices that were made for them, choices that they made and choices that they would have never made for themselves, and often the consequences that come out of the things that we face are not anticipated or expected. But let's be real, whether those choices are made by us or made for us, our life bears the marks of those decisions because they are defining moments in our life. The book of Ruth shows love. It's a great love story. But it also shows loss. But more importantly, it shows redemption. It shows redemption. And the book of Ruth shows folks the consequences of the various decisions that people make, right or wrong. They show the consequence, it shows the consequences. But it also shows that there is a variable that has the power to change everything. And that's the grace of God. Because it is the grace of God that directs the outcome of all the decisions that we make and all the events. He, he orchestrates and he moves those decisions that we make according to his sovereignty and the good purpose of his plan for his people. Not every decision, as we're going to see tonight, not every decision that Elimelech made was the proper decision. In fact, the book starts off pretty quick by poor decision of Elimelech. But God directed that decision and used it for his own purposes and his own glory. And the grace of God is always evident in the players of the game at the time. His grace is always there 
whether the events are acknowledged or unacknowledged, whether they were chosen by us or for us, church, the grace of God is always present. And the grace of God has the power to change the events, not from God's perspective, of course, but from our perspective. From God's perspective, the decisions were made before eternity passed. But the grace of God has the power to change and direct the decisions that we make for His glory and our good. And praise God for that. Because those are always defining moments. When we come to those crossroads, we have a decision to make. Those are always defining moments. And many times, every time, I'll, I'll go so far as to say, is those defining moments have life-altering consequences, whether they be good or whether they be bad. But let's look at the book of Ruth. This is an exciting book. It's an exciting book of love, loss, and redemption. Number one, I want you to look first of all at the setting. Let's get a little background of what's going on here. Look at verse 1. The book of Ruth starts with a description of the times of which the events took place. In verse 1 of chapter 1, the Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, I want you to understand that when the text tells us here that, the, that we're talking about the days when the judges ruled, the writer of Ruth is not just giving us a, a date stamp. He's not just giving us a place on a timeline. But what he's doing is he's giving us a theological description of the character of the times in which these events took place. By the way, the book of Ruth was not written by Ruth. No book of the Bible was written by a woman. The book of Ruth was probably written by Boaz. There's a little debate about that. But we know it wasn't written by Ruth, so don't, don't, don't confuse the name of the book with the author of the book. And so the, the, the fact is, is that the Bible says that this, we're in a time when the judges ruled. And there was a specific theological nuance, if you will, about what was going on at the times when the judges ruled. The Bible says in Judges, in fact, chapter 21 and verse 25, that during that time where there was no king and there were judges, that man did that which was right in his own eyes. Because there, were no, there was no king, there were judges. And it always seems to be that there was some type of repeated cycle with Israel, as it is many times with us, isn't it? At the beginning of each cycle, as, as in the book of Judges, if you read that book, God's people rebelled against God and sinned. And then the next thing God did is that God acted in judgment against them because of their sin. Then the people repented and cried out to the Lord, and at least for the first few times, they passed through this cycle. Sinning, judged, repent. Sin, judge, repent. Sin, judge, repent. Sounds like our life, doesn't it? Sin, judge, repent. But later on in the book of Ruth, the, though the, the step of repentance is missing, or later on in the book of Judges, the step of repentance is missing. Because as the book of Judges progresses, 
There's a change in the nature of the deliverers of who are sent and and how the people of God received the deliverers. The first judge was Othniel, and he was a really a squeaky clean kind of hero. The last judge was Samson, who systematically undermined our expectations or anybody's expectations of what a deliverer should be. Samson was called to be a Nazarite by birth. He took the Nazarite vow, which means he was separated by God from his mother's womb as a Nazarite, and he was not to touch those things that were anything that had to do with the following influences. And what Samson did is that he systematically broke every vow that had been made on his behalf as a Nazarite. Instead of avoiding, for example, contact with dead animals, which the part of the Nazarite vow was you could not touch a corpse. Instead of avoiding that conflict, he scoops honey out of a, the corpse of a lion in Judges chapter 14. Instead of avoiding contact with the Philistines, he wanted to marry one of them in Judges chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Instead of avoiding fermented drink that was part of the Nazarite vow, he participates in a drinking party with his future Philistine in-laws in Judges 14, verse 10. And Samson ends the life of God's enemies by bringing judgment on them in the mill, but he establishes no rest for God's people. He was a disgrace as a judge of the nation because, like everybody else, he did that which was right in his own eyes. And then, of course, all, also, the Nazarite vow was that his hair was not to be cut. And, of course, he broke that as well. He didn't lose his power because his hair was cut. He lost his power because he had rebelled the final time against God. Had nothing to do with his hair, had to do with his attitude. But he was a disgrace as a judge. And so we see the opening book, opening verse of the book of Ruth is this is the day of the time of the judges. And then the final chapters of the book of Judges, chapter 17 to 21, they stand outside of the downward spiral and show us in graphic detail a nation that has comprehensively lost its way to God. And then from that moment, we go where? To the book of Ruth. You end the book of Judges where they have completely lost their way because they have been led by ungodly judges, and now we're in the book of Ruth. And what the nation seems to be at this point is as bad as any pagan nation that they had previously inhabited prior to coming to the promised land except for those times where God periodically sent them a deliverer to rescue them and to turn their hearts back to him the days of the judges of Israel were bleak dark times of disobedience on the part of God's people 
And because of the disobedience, inevitably and invariably what followed was God's judgment that rested on the land. And this is where Elimelech and Naomi, his wife, find themselves in the midst of God's judgment. And so when the Bible opens in the first verse that it came, time, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, God is again not giving us a time stamp, but God is giving us an indication of what the spiritual temperature was in the nation at the time. But not only do we see the setting, but let's see the settlement. The settlement. Look at uh, the latter part of verse 1. It says, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons was Malon and Chilion, Ephraimites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab, and continued there. Elimelech made a decision. Folks, he's like every one of us. He came to a crossroads. He came to a crossroads in his life. And the crossroad was a decision. Do I stay in Bethlehem? Or do I leave Bethlehem because there's a famine and go somewhere else? Well, he chose to go to Moab. He chose to go to the land of Moab. And as you can see, it wasn't an easy journey. They would not have probably had a way to cross what is the Red Sea, or the Dead Sea, I'm sorry. So they would have had to have gone around it. It was not an easy journey. In fact, you can see on that map an outline of the journey that they would have taken from Bethlehem to Moab and back. And then, of course, if you know the story of Ruth, the route that Naomi and Ruth had taken back to Bethlehem. Do you remember the origination of the Moabites? It happened in Genesis chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 30, going to around verse 38. It was when Lot and his two daughters came out of the cities of Solomon and Gomorrah after the judgment of God, and he came to a city, uh, came to the city of Zoar. And in that, but being afraid to stay, and you get an idea of that map where the city of Zoar is. It's right along the coast of the Dead Sea, along Solomon and Gomorrah to the north, and then Zoar is just to the south. And being afraid to stay in the city, he decided to take Lot, decided to take his two daughters and go and live in a cave outside of the city. We're not quite 100% sure of why Saul was afraid to stay in the city. Possibly his reputation. Possibly the lifestyle of the people in the city was similar to that of Zoar. But at any rate, what's important to that is he went up and he stayed in the cave outside of the city. And it was in that cave that his two daughters came up with this idea. They had no husband. And so they devised a plan. And the plan was is that on two consecutive nights, 
They would make their father drunk and go into their father and do things that ought not be done. Since we've got younger ones in here, I'll just leave it at that. And as a result of those actions, on those two nights, the first night the oldest daughter went in, got her father drunk, and went into his father. The second night the youngest daughter got her father drunk, and she went into him. And as a result of that incestuous union, these two girls became pregnant, and the oldest son gave birth to a son, and his name was called Moab. And that was the beginning of the Moabites. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 37, And the firstborn bare son, and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And again, as you can see from the map, there is no small journey from Bethlehem to Moab. It's hard to measure it on a map because of the Dead Sea being right there in the middle, but as best, we can, as, best as I can approximate on the, on the tools that I have, the electronic tools I have, it's somewhere anywhere between 75 and 90 miles. Now, we drive that every day sometimes, don't we? But these people are on foot, or at best on the back of a donkey or a camel. And either on foot or on a donkey or a camel, that's a long way. 75 to 90 miles is a long way. And some of it was through mountainous regions, which would have made the journey, even though it would not have increased necessarily the mileage, it would have increased the, the, the threat and the time of that journey. So Elimelech took his family from Bethlehem, because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, had resulted in famine in the land. The irony of that is the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Elimelech had a choice to make. He could stay in Bethlehem, mourn the sin, mourn the sin that surrounded him and trust God to provide, or alternately, he could leave the promised land, could leave all that behind in search for greener pastures, in this case, the fields of Moab, where food, as far as he knew, was more abundant. Church, let me tell you something right now. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, isn't it? Until you find out that the grass over there has to be mowed too. And then it doesn't seem as green as it used to. Now the question is, the question that I ask myself as I study these things, did Elimelech make the right choice? He came to this crossroads, did he make the right choice? Well, if you know the book of Ruth, ultimately God directed sovereignly the course of what Elimelech took for his glory, which God always does. Everything we do, good or bad, is done. God somehow is going to get the glory. But from a human perspective did, and a spiritual perspective, did Elimelech make the right choice? Well, contemporary thinking would say, well, he made the choice he had to make, right? I mean, what else was he going to do? I mean, there was a famine. I mean, there was no food. And you can read some amazing history, uh, some ancient history, some more contemporary history of when, there, when, there, when the famine went on in Israel. 
where the people of Israel were, were eating sand. They were eating dirt. In fact, there's one, I've got one book in my library written by Alfred Edersheim, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, a wonderful book on the Jewish culture of the time. And he has accounts in there where the Israelites were eating the bottoms of sandals uh, to survive. And there was even an instance where the Israelites were eating the afterbirth uh, to stay alive. And so the famine was no joke. You know, we think if we don't have oatmeal cream pies in our cupboard, we're in a famine. But the famine in Israel was no joke. So what was he going to do? Elimelech was faced with this crossroads, and he said, I don't feel like I've got any other choice. Was he to stay and trust God? Or was he going to go where there were greener pastures? The problem is, is that God had called Him and God calls us to first, church, be in His will. And sometimes God's will doesn't make sense, does it? In fact, I'll say that to the watching world, most of the time the will of God doesn't make any sense. And so God first called Elimelech and He calls us to be in His will. And folks, listen, if we are in His will, if Elimelech was in God's will, then he would have taken care of his family. I want, to give you, I want to give you a statement, and I never want you to forget this statement. And the statement is this. You honor God, and he will honor you. You give God first place in your life, and God will take care of you. You don't ever have to worry about the fact that you have to slight God in order to take care of this, this, or the other thing. If you honor God with your time, your talents, and everything else He requires of you, then God will take care of everything else. The Word of God is replete with examples of how people honored God and God obligated Himself and did take care of them. Do I believe Elimelech made the right decision? At the time, it probably wasn't the wisest choice to make. Because where was he taking his family? He was taking his family to a pagan nation that was the enemy of his own nation. And certainly did not worship the God of Israel. God called him to be in his will. God calls us to be in his will. And God had delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them into the land of Canaan as a special place for them to live. And God had called Elimelech to live in Bethlehem, and he had no business taking his family anywhere else, least of all Moab. Because for Israel, Moab was known for a number of things, and none of them were good. First, Israel knew Moab as, as for what we've already discussed, their incestuous beginnings. But it was the Moabite king Balak who hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt in Numbers 22 uh, and 24. The women of Moab, Moab had been stumbling blocks to the men of Israel, seducing them to worship their false gods in Numbers 25. And recently, according to Judges 3, the Moabite king Eglon had, had oppressed the Israelites. And so when Elimelech came to the crossroads of a decision in his life, 
he made the decision to leave. Before he left the promised land and went to a place like Moab, Elimelech should have, Elimelech's very name should have given him pause because Elimelech's name means my God is king. But it appears that God was no more in Elimelech's heart any more than he was in the hearts of his fellow countrymen. Now we don't give Elimelech a hard time because who knows the decisions that we would have made. There was no king in Elimelech's life, and so many times as it was in the days when the judges ruled, they chose to do what was right in their own eyes. Let me ask you a question, church. How many times have you made a decision that seemed right in your own eyes? Well, pastor, this just makes sense. doesn't mean it's God's will. Instead of following the path of repentance and faith and trusting in the Lord to provide for his needs, he moved to follow what seemed to be the best prospect for his family, humanly speaking. He chose the book of Moab, or he chose the road to Moab. The book of Ruth is filled with application. What road do you choose in life, church? Because very often in life, the defining moments of life where we get to direct our own course for the future, the facts or the factors that often weigh in most heavily in our decisions seem to be those things that are going to give us the most comfort and the most security. And at the bottom, and unfortunately, the unfortunate thing is for many Christians' lives is that the bottom line of our lives is rarely God's will or his, as is revealed in His Word. Especially when that decision seems to cut to what we think is the best prospect or the thing that makes the best sense. Because what we do is when we make, sometimes when we make decisions, we rarely think seriously about the impact our choices will have on our ability to raise a Christian family in a world that is often, very often less than ideal. Like Elimelech, we, we act as the sovereign in our own lives and we, and we make decisions that seem to make sense to us at the time without taking into consideration the future impact. And we're all guilty. We don't look at the long-term application or implications of the decisions that we make. Elimelech just made this decision based upon what was secure and what made sense at the time, what seemed to be right in his own eyes, and he didn't make any assessment of the disastrous effects that it could have. You say, Pastor, what was the disastrous effect? The first disastrous effect, as we're going to see as we go on, is that his two sons married two pagan girls. That was number one disastrous effect. Now, God sovereignly overturned and directed the decision, but the decision was a bad decision because his son should have never have married those girls. They were pagan. In fact, they were, they were uh, commanded by the law of God not to marry those kind of people. But moms and dads, 
put your kids with ungodly, don't be surprised if they pick up on ungodliness. Because they always will. Elimelech put his sons with ungodliness, and they picked up the ungodly. And so much of the times that as believers we carry the name Christian. But does Christian really have the defining impact on the decisions that we make? Or is it just something that we have in name? Yeah, I'm a Christian, and well, you may be. But one that is like Christ is not just a badge that we carry. It's a defining moment. It's a defining thing in our life because we are like, we are little Christs, which is what Christian literally means. We are like Christ. That should have that should have impact on the decisions that we make. It's not just a badge we wear. And so much of the times, it becomes for all of us, myself included, it becomes a badge that we wear but doesn't have an effect on the decisions that we make. And just as Elimelech's name means my God is king, yet he lived in a way that made it evident that God was really not his king at all. And the roads we choose for ourselves often make our deepest heart commitments plain for all to see, doesn't it? What do you mean, Pastor? You watch somebody and the decisions they make, that tells you where their heart is. The decision somebody makes tells you who's king of their life. The decision somebody makes tells who's really God and on the throne in their hearts. And it wasn't long after Elimelech got to Moab with his family that Elimelech was dead. I'm not saying that Elimelech was killed by the judgment of God. I'm not saying that at all because the text of the Bible doesn't say that. So I'm not going to go there and say that. But what we do know is they weren't there any time. And Naomi's husband was dead. And then it wasn't any time after Malon and Chilion married Orpah and Ruth that those two boys were dead. And then there was just Obed, Ruth, and Naomi. Folks, the decisions that you make, if there's, number, if there's, if there's one application that we make from the first two, chat, first two verses of Ruth, chapter 1, is this. Before we even get to the kinsman redeemer, which is the wonderful part of the story, before we even get to that, God wants us to know what decisions do you make at the crossroads of your life. Elimelech was faced with one. He made the wrong one. What decisions do you make? Because the decisions that you make, the decisions that I make, have lasting ramifications. And so whatever decision that we make, we need to take those implications of the future in mind. If I do this to my child, what type of implications is it going to have? It may be easy for me at the time, but what type of implications is it going to have for my child in the future? What type of, if I, if I do take this course of action, what is the implication in the future? It may be easy for me right now, but what's going to be the implication for my family in the future? Elimelech didn't do that. He did what was easy. 
He did what was made sense. And yeah, he probably did what most of us men would have done, myself, all of us. He probably did what most of us would have been at least tempted to do. I mean, it's easy to read the text of the Bible and then sit back in armchair quarterback. I mean, everybody's a pro quarterback on Monday morning, aren't they, Kevin? But when you're in the game, it's a little different. And so I'm not so naive as to believe that I may not have been tempted to make and maybe it would have made the same decision as Eliminate because I've made some pretty stupid decisions in my lifetime. I've made dumb times five decisions in my life. But the lesson God wants us to know from the first two verses, you come to that crossroads in your life, what decision are you going to make? Because the decision that you make shows the king that's on the throne of your heart, whether it be the God of Israel, the God of heaven, or whether it be the God of self. Because the decisions that you make have lasting ramifications. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opening remarks of this book, and we thank you, Lord, for the application it gives us. I pray, Father, that your people, Father, would be encouraged and uh, to live in the result of you are king and that you would be the king of our hearts. Father, we, as we come to the crossroads of life, may we honor you. May we glorify you. We thank you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.